Hello, and welcome to the Alt Left. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 37 of the Alt Left. I am your host, Comrade Chris. With me is the Reverend Dr. K. Good evening, everyone. And Mailbag Matt. Mailbag. I like that. Can we do Mailbag Matt? Oh, I I was supposed to say Mailman, and I said Mailbag. You know what? I'm I'm keeping it. Let's, let's, today we're objectifying Matt. And my sack. It is pretty glorious. Pendulous and sweet. Yeah, it is. So, we are going to be talking about communism today, as promised. Yay! The specter of communism that has haunted Europe, as Churchill said. And yeah, um, you know, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about where it is, where it came from, what it is. Um, it's going to be real brief. Um, so so basically, uh, you know, our history of socialism is that, uh, and I, I got this directly from American textbooks. Uh, basically, one day Satan presented Karl Marx to the Russians. Uh, he immediately swallowed the Romanov family whole and defecated two twins, Stalin and Lenin. Uh, Lenin sacrificed himself as the Antichrist to make the Soviet Union uh, succeed, and Stalin served as a false prophet, eating bald eagles, puppies, and American children uh, for daily sustenance. Uh, shortly after, America defeated Stalin by planting a flag on the moon, and thus all space was legally and morally set aside for capitalism in the American way. Uh, once this happened, Stalin immediately disintegrated and his ashes were given like rings of power to Vietnam, Cuba, Venezuela, and China, uh, where they still poison the land to this day. And that's the end of our story. Day is safe. Go America. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate it. it. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Great episode. so yeah. much this episode. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Know, we, we strive to educate on this podcast more than anything else, so I hope that that was good, as good for everyone else as it was for us. And I really hope we helped. Yeah, God bless America. Go America. See you next week, everybody. Back to actual reality. <laughs> we are going to be talking about socialism and communism today and kind of what it means. You know, one of the biggest things that has uh, spurred this uh, idea that, you know, Matt's been itching to do this topic. For and one so of the big long, ones so yeah, long. is because, you know, a lot of people don't really know the difference of socialism, communism. What are these things? What are the difference? And they're a lot more interchangeable than people think. First of all, word definition, okay? According to Oxford, which is not the best source for left-leaning politicking or political theory, but it is a good one for word definitions. Oxford defines socialism, and and we're going to talk later about how the UK might not be the best source for socialist information, but uh, (laughs) socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production distribution and exchange should be owned and regulated by the community as a whole. So basically it's an economic theory that these means of production, which are factories, which are anything that produces money, goods, or services, anything that produces capital, which is wealth should be owned and managed by the people. Communism is a political theory derived directly from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. Now, I definitely take issue with the negative tone on that one, but I mean, again, you know, what do you expect from capitalists? Bias exists. We all have it. You can kind of already see the smear campaign going there, where it's like, oh, socialism is a political theory, and they believe that things should be owned. And it's like, communism wants to take your children away from you and start a class war, and all all property is publicly owned. That's not even close to true. That is not the reality. Ask any actual theory-read communist, right, what this means. 
and and and, and there's a difference of properties. I think that's one of the biggest issues. The, the first thing we need to tackle is what are what is property? Marx talked a lot about this, and we'll go into this. But basically, to communists, there are three types of property. There is public property, private property, and personal property. Public property is things like government buildings. It's uh, parks, uh, schools, that kind of thing. Things that are open to the public. And even some, even in, in the United States, we have exceptions to that where there's private property like a business center. But if it has driveways into the street, there's multiple businesses and has communal parking, it's considered private property with public access, right? You can't, you can't nail someone for walking across it, that kind of thing. But typically, public property is government-owned and regulated buildings and or land meant to be used for public use. Private property is things like a business, uh, a farm, uh, even that's a bad example, you know, but a private property would be like a factory. Uh, private property is a big company. Coca-Cola is private property. All of its factories, its trademarks, its formulas, all of its products, that is private property. Okay, if you go out and buy a Jansport backpack, the factory that was made in, the materials that exist within it, the labor that was produced, and the backpack that was sold are private property. And then you have personal property, and personal property is the backpack once purchased. Once you have that backpack, that is your backpack. Okay, so again, let's say K needs to get a backpack. K is going to hop in his car, which is personal property, belongs solely to him. He is going to drive it on public property, which is a road, to get to a store, which is a business that is private property. In that private property, he will buy a backpack, making that backpack his personal property, which he will take back to his, uh, through the private property parking lot to his personal property car to drive on public property roads to go back home, in which case he will take his private property backpack into his private property home. And I know that's a long road to get there, no pun intended, but that, that that's the definition and they're important. Is everyone still with me? Uh, yeah, I'm totally with you. And I should just also mention, like when we're talking about property, we are going to be using these definitions uh, for this episode. That and the, that's the reason why Chris went to such lengths to define them adequately is so because that is when when we're talking about property, this is how these are the accepted definitions we are going to be using. Yes, and, yeah, and it's it's necessary for the conversation. Yeah, well, especially if we're going to be talking about the differences in terminologies and 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 misgivings on this, you know, but. Capitalists use this property term, and it's, it's a typical tactic of the right is to basically play word games. You know, well, I don't want to wear a mask, so I'm going to own the libs and say my body, my choice. They're always going for semantical arguments, and that's what this is, because just like Oxford, you know, puts in their definition of communism, all property is publicly owned. And it's like, well, that's bullshit. Marxism at its most fanatical roots never ever insinuates or suggests that personal property should ever be publicly owned. It says private property should because private property is the means of production and it wants workers to own and control these things. But your home, your car, your backpack, the groceries in your fridge, your refrigerator itself, these are private property that literally no one, right, left, Marxist, capitalist, thinks should be publicly owned. It's a non sequitur BS argument that doesn't need to exist. Uh, arguing about whether or not communists want to publicly own everything you have is you might as well worry about unicorns taking it as well. Yeah, and you hit on something too that I want to clarify. Uh, we're going to be getting into this more, 
But what Chris was talking about, Marxism, Marx, as most people should know, is the one who basically created communism. That 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 it was his. Uh, no, Marx is the author of the Communist Manifesto. Okay, fair enough. But yeah, the modern Marx inclination of of what communism should be, like it it starts with him. Like I mean, he's the one that I I would say like branded it. Uh, kind of okay. So let's do a little history here. So. Well, hold on. So, the only thing I want to say is, is just to be clear, there there are distinctions to be made. So, um, what typically, and again, we're going to get into this, what most people perceive as communism is not what Marxism was talking. Marx was talking about. Correct. Sorry, Chris. There, there there's the one little thing I wanted to mention. No, and I, I think it's a really good one, which is why when people are t- the only people who typically say things like communist China and communist this are people who don't understand the nuanced differences, which is why actual communists talk about Maoists and Leninists and Stalinists and Trotskyists because, and Marxists, because these are different theories. They're completely different. You know, you know Trotsky and Stalin could not have had more different views on, on the role of the state for people, but they were in, full agreement that you should be killing people who don't work hard enough, which is actually my big complaint against yeah. Trotsky, you yep. know, whereas, you Gulags know, Lenin were still in place under Trotsky without a doubt. Well, gulags were in place under Lenin. They just weren't called gulags. And they weren't, they weren't as widespread as they were once Stalin came. About. They were not as nasty. They were not as widespread. Gulags under Lenin existed literally for counter revolutionaries mm-hmm. and terrible people. And under Stalin, they turned into, well, anybody who, who, who pisses off the Mario mustache goes to the gulag. Um, it's kind of a, anyone who Stalin didn't like went to a gulag. So that was kind of where the difference is. Cause I, I've been trying real, like I knew I was going to have to keep up with you. So I was trying really hard to, to get all this stuff down so I could at least keep up with you on this one. This is great. This is, this is the kind of intellectual discourse we need in the world. People need to read this stuff. Hate it, love it, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, I know Kay and I disagree on a lot of this stuff, but at no point do I think that Kay is uninformed or unread or that his opinion isn't nuanced. Like, we can disagree. We all need to have these conversations, though. And as soon as you get into hyperbole and start calling people sycophants and blah, 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 that's where you come into the problem. If you're, if we're all on the left, we need to be able to have disagreements. And even I'll talk about people mm-hmm. like Democratic Socialists, who I think the Democratic Socialist Party is awful. But not because I, I don't even not because I hate all their stances. I think they're right on a lot of things. I don't like the way the political party is run. But that's a nuanced opinion that we can't get into if we're going to throw bottles at each other. Yep. Save your bottle throwing for the fucking Nazis. When it comes to Marx and Marxism, so socialism, again, and that's kind of the is that socialism and communism are different, but also synonymous. And that's what makes it really unique. Okay. So the, the true difference between socialism and communism, right? It, it, socialism is a little more economic. Communism is a little more political, but they both are deeply rooted in both. Socialism means that everyone should own the common means of production. People should be receiving pay to sustain their needs regardless of what their job is. Doctors should not be incredibly wealthy while fast food workers are poor. They should both be getting wages that support them and their families. It says that education should be free. It says that the purpose of the government should be to serve the people and their needs. And it also says that the people should be owning things. Amazon should be a publicly owned and regulated company. There should be no private shareholders. Under socialism, the stock market would cease to exist. Okay, this is what socialism is. 
communism, which, by the way, hasn't existed in the modern era, communism, there is no religion, there is no money, there is no property that is not personal property, okay? In communism, we literally see the abolition of capital in its entirely. Resources are moved around and money stops existing, okay? Communism is not something that China decided to instill in their good. Communism is a word that communists, things people believe in, use to describe the theory and their goals, okay? A Christian is not someone who thinks they are Christ. A Christian is someone who says Christ's message was awesome and I'm into it. Well, at least non-American Christians, you know? I did forget one thing with your definition there, Chris. We also, you forgot that we also want to uh, eat, murder and eat babies of everybody that isn't religious. Uh, we also want to take everyone and just throw them into gulags. Um, and I think think i think we also worship satan right well and hold on real quick everyone should be part of the satanic temple because they're amazing but um the whole eating babies thing uh the only reason it's true is that many um a lot of early communists uh didn't believe in imbibing in alcohol and the sacramental wine that babies drink at church uh really spoils the meat uh so it's actually more of a, of a health code violation than than ethics so that's but why. of course, all that's horseshit. Just like anybody that's trying to turn people that support the ideas associated with communism into some kind of raging monsters that just want to worship Stalin's image throughout the United States. Because it's all horseshit propaganda that doesn't hold water when you talk to anybody who's got, you know, well, I mean, there are some Stalinists uh, out there, but they're the, largely the, dumbasses. The, the, like, tankies exist, man. They're everywhere. Um, but I'm but just they're, saying they're, most, they're not liked most, by the community either. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, is every community has idiots in it. The left isn't free from them. Look at the Jimmy Dore cultists. Those guys are leftists, but they're fucking morons. Do I agree with them on stuff? Sure. Do I agree with where a lot of their ideas when it comes to Dore and fucking stupid shit like that? No, not at all. Every single group you have is going to have the worst stupid members of it that are going to scream the loudest. You cannot judge those groups by the stupidest among them. No, and you have to judge what a majority of them are doing and what is the philosophy they're actually preaching. Because mm -hmm. I can look at a group who does things that are illegal or we might consider dick moves, but they're kind of doing it for a benefit that is semi-good or you know morally upright and then i can look at let's say a group of proud boys who aren't doing anything wrong who are just standing and holding trump flags and i can still say that one is a piece of shit because what's your philosophy what are you standing for well if you're standing for white nationalism then i don't care how peaceful or calm or good or how many chickens you're feeding like i don't give a shit you're advocating their leaders from cuba he can't be resist actually uh so funny thing, not only is he no longer the leader, uh, turns out he was an FBI informant the entire time. That came out not that long ago, which I love because, I mean, fuck the FBI, but fuck the Proud Boys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we go off too much of a tangent, let's get the history lesson out of the way. So everyone to take a swig of your coffee uh, before you pass out on me. So, so, so socialism and communism. Again, we're going to use them kind of interchangeable because communism is an end goal. Socialism is the political and economic theory and engine to get us there. Communism is the catch-up. Socialism is the French fry. Okay? That's where we're going. 
So anyone who's like, I'm there are communist nations, like, well, they're actually not. They've called themselves that. They've labeled them. But so what? We label ourselves a democracy. We're not a democracy. On paper, we're a public. In reality, we're an oligarchy. So calling yourself something doesn't mean shit. Yeah, fucking Nazis called themselves socialists. Well, and is anybody truly what they call themselves? Any country? Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The, the UK and France call themselves democratic republics, and that's pretty accurate. And Okay. I, mean, I would Fair actually enough. say, I would say most countries are actually are I, what I they think, call themselves. Yeah, but you know, I think Kay's getting more towards the point of like, you know, a lot of countries will position themselves as things other than they are. But when it comes to this specific thing, yes, Chris is right. Like they, they, they do kind of absolutely say what they are. Uh, when it yeah. comes to the U.S., we absolutely do not. <laughs> yeah, Mexico's pretty upfront about them being a republic. Uh, so anyway, but so socialism has a lot of roots long before Karl Marx, right? So the first time we're really kind of seeing it in what would be anything like socialism is in ancient Greece. Uh, something called uh, koinonia. I'm going to mispronounce that. I mean, it's spelled K-O-I-A. Anyway, it's koinonia. And basically, in English, it kind of means fellowship, brotherhood, that kind of thing. And it was a philosophy, uh, right? Most people, it, it basically meant that the wealthy would give a majority of their wealth to the poor. Um, and they would do things like serve public office without pay or any kind of compensation. So yeah, it, they would forgive any debtors who were struggling with paying them back. Um, and even if we're going to talk ancient Greece, I mean, Plato is very famously wrote the book Republic, which is what most people kind of consider Plato's big work. And he made a huge argument that basically that humankind wouldn't be free until we had a common distribution of property. Uh, that's socialism. That's what that is. And the modern iterations of this go all the way back to the 1700s. If we're going to talk about them, you know, if we're going to get out of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, whatever, if we want to talk about like Western culture in the modern age, right, it coincides with the Industrial Revolution, there's a reason for this. Marx said that himself. You know, this is about class struggle. And in the Industrial Revolution, you suddenly have coal, you know, you suddenly have coal and steam powered plants. All of a sudden, you have furnaces that can be lit anywhere. It doesn't just have to be a small factory by a river. You've got manufacturing happening in mass. Steelworks start going up everywhere. We start having advances like massive interchangeable parts. We start having um, industries start to learn. I mean, God, was it the, uh, the, 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 what's the term for? K, you know this. It helps with steel production. It's the Bessemer something. Bessemer process. Ah, Bessemer process. Thank you. Yeah, that comes comes around at this time where people like Carnegie, right, one of the biggest producers of steel the world has ever seen, and one of the richest men of his time. It's because he has these these Bessemer converters for this that he realizes I don't need to to ever stop them. Turning them off means I'm not making money. Let them oh. be destroyed. Who cares? And so we started running them all the time, letting them get destroyed because he didn't care. He would make more money by increasing the mass of production. It was actually cheaper and easier to just leave them on, yeah, uh, than it than it was to turn them off and turn them back on, and uh, and and that that's actually something that that goes through to this day in a lot of industries. It's cheaper to just leave stuff on than it is to turn it off mm -hmm. and turn it back on. There's a lot of shit that you end up doing at a loss because it makes sense in the long run. Like, um, I remember Xbox One, Xbox, and the Xbox 360 came out. The, Microsoft sold those at a loss. They still do to this day as well as Sony. And they do that based on the fact that they're looking at selling games and that's how they're making making their money. They still lose money on every unit they sell. Because that's not where the cash crop is. 
Yeah, but it's the same reason your cell phone company is willing to knock hundreds of dollars off of your phone price to get you to sign on because they know they're going to get you locked in for years. Like they're going to make money on your monthly payments. You're going to pay 80% of the phone's value of the cost, which by the way, they're knocking it off retail. They're not even going at a loss. They're basically killing their profit no. margin on hardware sales is all they're doing. And yeah, then well, they're and breaking exactly it in on they, monthly premiums. They make their money on the actual service. They don't make their money on product. Exactly. They don't make any. They don't make hardly any money on that case that they gave you at twenty dollars instead of the forty dollars that it's labeled at. Yeah, they they don't make any money on that. They make the money on that monthly that monthly charge that you're paying for. Um, yeah, it, it, that's exactly what it is. And 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 also the and in terms of production, that's the service sector. In terms of production, if you if you make something at such a high volume, you can bring down the profit per piece, right? So if you're making 100 units of something a day, right, you have a daily cost of operations, you take that out of the materials and the labor and all that. And at the end of the day, you have a profit margin, how much money in profit am I making, which means I need to make this much money to stay in business. But what if you make 7000 of that product in a day? Well, you can make your profit margin a lot smaller. If you're selling 7,000 of something versus 100 of something, you can start charging less and less for it. And what that does, it still keeps you making the same amount of profit, but it fucks over every single competitor you could possibly have. This is what Carnegie did. This is this is how union steel and oil were born. This is how robber barons took over the nation was by by realizing they could just maximize production, even if sometimes we're going at a loss. There's some times of the year where it costs more to make it doesn't matter. Crank it the fuck out, because even if we have to lose some money, it is profitable to fuck everyone else out of competition with us. Because once we become the only game in town, we can do things like hold our product hostage on the railroads and actually force railroads to give us a discount. Again, now when it's my oil getting transported on a train car, it's transporting for cheaper, lowers the price I can sell it at. Now, a lot of capitalists will say, well, that's great. That, 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 that's savings. It trickles down to the consumer. But that's not why they do it. They do it to fuck over competition because once the competition is gone, you can jack up your rates to do whatever you want. You corner the markets. What Uber has just recently done. Yeah. Uber has operated at a loss since its inception until very recently. And the, they did that on purpose. They drove out anyone, everyone who tried to be in competition with them. The only ones who were able to pull it off was Lyft. And they haven't done as well. And they were doing the same game. And now they've all jacked their prices up because now they have to make a profit. But what they did was make sure there wasn't a bunch of competing companies. They made sure they cornered the market. So now they can jack the price up to whatever they want. So one of the things people will talk about with the free market is that the free market breeds innovation. The free market breeds competition and that will bring down prices and raise quality it doesn't the free market breeds monopolies that's the point of it is you are to eat your competitors and then once you're the only game in town you become huge and so you had two camps when this you know, the industrial revolution bred that thought and so you have guys like voltaire and kant who basically get credit as these great minds who created laissez-faire capitalism and again at the time that was a liberal belief uh because monarchies controlled things you know, so the idea that a regular person could do stuff is amazing, you know, and that's why you have that that term like classic liberalism that people talk about where they're ultra capitalist. 
that's what that is because it was a liberal idea at the time but like wait a second you don't own a castle you're not allowed to do commerce the idea that like no no i'm just rich and i don't have any noble blood and i'm still allowed to be rich that was novel and progressive as fuck yeah but then the same thing that happened with with monarchies is what's happening now the rich have gotten super rich super powerful they control everything and they don't want to let that power go so they've continually gamed the system so that anybody that would normally be able to get that power can't oh yeah we'll get there yeah absolutely that's that is the that is that is always the end goal of a capitalistic system and it's it's not like people are just now waking up to this you know it's, it's kind of the argument against american slavery um when i'll hear people talk about like slave owning founding fathers and that kind of thing they'll be like well it was it was the 1700s people didn't know any better back then yeah everyone knew better back then in the 1700s, people were railing against American slavery. The British stopped trading with certain places because of it. The British had outlawed it. The Dutch had outlawed it. I mean, it was illegal in a lot of places. It was by the time the Americans were in our own game and had independence, it was happening here and like Cuba and like Haiti and a couple of the places. And that was basically it. The slave trade was toast because everyone was like, whoa, that's chattel slavery super fucked up. Yeah, and it and was by the well way, you known. Glossed, you, you glossed over it, but the motherfuckers who started the slave trade, the Dutch, stopped doing it before the United States. Yes. Let that people sink who profited in. most. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's the thing is so this idea that people didn't it's always a, it's always bullshit. I'm sorry. Ethics and morality exist regardless of time. Certain circumstances can push popular beliefs forward. But the idea that torturing and killing and causing destruction and terribleness towards other humans, no, we, we've known that since the cave. So we talked about Voltaire and Comte, but Thomas Paine, who's pretty much known as like one of the greatest philosophers, um, not only in English history, but in pretty much Western civilization that isn't Greek. You know, everyone likes Thomas Paine. Uh, he wrote the famous Agrarian Justice, and I don't remember what year it was. It was late 1700s. It was very late 1700s, it was almost the 1800s. I want to say it was like 1790s, 1780s. And in that time, that's where he argued that landowners needed to be taxed more and not just taxed more. They need to be taxed in the relation to the needs of the poor. The tax burden on wealthy landowners needs to reflect what the poor need and then it needs to be distributed to them. That's socialism. And that's in the 1700s in England. And before that, now, Thomas Paine, everyone knows about a grain justice. Almost the thing that made Thomas Paine famous is a book he wrote called Rights of Man. And in there, he advocated for, for a comprehensive program of state support for the population uh, to basically ensure the welfare of all of society, regardless of who you were. Um, and part of that was including a state subsidy for poor people. He wanted state-financed universal public education, which is something we finally have now, but he wanted it then. And he wanted state-sponsored prenatal care and postnatal care, which we still don't have, including state subsidies to families when they had children. Okay, so he recognized that in his words are he's recognizing that a person's labor ought to be over before old age is what he said. And he also and for that, he called for all workers to have a pension that starts at 50 and would then double when they turn 60 years old. So in 1770s, Thomas Paine was ahead of the Western world in 2021. These are not new thoughts. So then where do like words like socialism, communism come from in, in, in the modern era? It's, it's the French Revolution is where this really gets big. Because the American Revolution was a revolution for capitalists. It was land owning, very wealthy men 
who didn't want to have the British stopping them from stealing land from natives and committing genocide. It, this was not about freedom. This was not about the betterment of mankind or liberty. Not, this was about rich people wanting to get richer and didn't. It was very libertarian. They didn't want government regulation anymore. And so, but the French Revolution was not. The French Revolution was about cutting off the heads of kings who were starving the shit out of the people. A very different motivation. It, it was actually a revolution from the commoners, not from the wealthy. And that was the difference of the two. So anyway, after the French Revolution, France is teeming with like awesome social philosophers, right? They're all over the place. It's a, it's a, it's a, no pun intended. It's a renaissance of philosophy. France is all about this shit. Bunch of dudes with bad accents, drinking wine and talking shit about rich people. It was fucking great. My kind of place. Um, and, and they were really talking about communal ownership of private property. And that was gaining a lot of public acceptance. People, they're common people wanted public buildings to be in public control and things like warehouses and shops to be in public control. Um, and one of the famous guys, again, another name I'm going to butcher. I wrote it down here. It's Henry de Saint-Simon, but I'm sure it's Saint-Simon or whatever. I don't know. Henry de Saint-Simon, though, as a dumb American would pronounce it. Actually, uh, I think he did it better on that back end. Saint-Simon sounds pretty, pretty honest. Saint-Simon. Uh, well, he's the founder of, of French socialism. That's that's what he's famous for. He's the French version. He's the French Karl Marx. Um, and and where Marx got a lot of his ideas from, actually, uh, he was an early sociologist back before sociology was even a thing. Uh, and he was actually the one who one of the ones who pioneered for sociological study to have the same research and attention that the physical sciences did. So he was basically saying, hey, chemistry is great, but we should also be dealing with some social sciences and finding out why, you know, poor people are dying. And his basic theory, and it's going to rhyme a lot with Marxism here, is he categorized society into two general classes, right? The workers, which is, and this is where we get terms like bourgeoisie. Uh, you have the workers um, who are, uh, who later Marx would be called the proletarian, who are the workers who, who they comprise the wage laborers, manufacturers, scientists, engineers, scholars, bankers, merchants, anyone who contributed to production and distribution, right? And then you had the idlers. That's what the bourgeoisie is, the idle rich and the, the middle class. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they were people like landowners, okay? Rentiers, people who would rent homes and land to people. Uh, the military, the nobility, the clergy. Because remember, at the time, nowadays, there are some clergy who are rich, but they tend to run the cult, megachurches, that kind of thing. You don't see a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Methodist bishops with 17 yachts. You know, you don't see that anymore. Modern clergy are working class. But at the time, clergy was very bourgeois back then. If you were a clergy, you knew how to read, you knew how to write, you had, you were part of a giant bureaucracy and you owned land and you were able to charge money for things like weddings and funerals and services. Like and you managed the, the bank accounts of the church and no one told you what to do with that money. You, you paid the bills and everything else was, well, it's for me and God. And I'm just going to take this big pile of money and I'm going to throw it up into the air. Whatever God wants, he keeps. And the rest of it is clearly meant for me. <laughs> that's, that's the philosophy back then. These guys were loaded. But anyway, th these people made no material contributions to the economy. And that was the difference. Is some people are making things and creating an economy. Money is moving around and you're, and you're making, you're buying, you're selling, you're feeding people, you're making clothing, you're, you're performing a service, you're cooking food, whatever. And these idlers don't do anything. People who rent land and rent homes don't actually contribute to society. They just take money. They don't build anything. Clergy? What did the clergy do? They ran sacramental rites. They didn't actually contribute. Uh, the nobles? They sat in castles and got fed. You know, So the, that's who he was talking about. 
And then he dies. And he was a utopianist, which is kind of where he differs from Marxism. But after his death, his followers spread his ideas all over France. And they're the ones who actually coined the term socialism and made it mainstream. Uh, and that's where that comes from. So that's where we get socialism and the bourgeoisie. And then shortly after, this is where we get to Daddy Marx, right? This is, this is where some really good beards come into play. Karl Marx and his partner, Frederick Engels, who's the other person in the manifesto, uh, and he does not get enough credit, by the way, uh, they, they were contemporaries. Um, and, and while Marx had a majority of the ideas here, he was kind of the brains in the organization. Uh, Engels was sharp and Engels was, it's like Marx was the idea man and Engels was the function man. Okay, Engels helped Marx make his theories cogent, uh, and he contributed a lot to them. And he's the one who made Marx not sound like the kind of wild-haired, bearded madman that he looked like. Well, and wasn't he the one that actually wrote most of the the actual book? Yes and no. Engels? So basically, Marx was like, I've got this and 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 this. And, and, and Engels was like, okay, um, I'm going to make this not sound insane, and I'm going to organize it. He was the inker. Like in comic book terms, that's yeah. what he did. He was the inker. He was the anchor and in, in publishing terms, he was the editor and publisher. You know, he yep, was, yep. he was the one who took all of Marx's crazy candlelit napkin scribblings and formed them into a, a manifesto you can read. And, and that's a great team in philosophy. If you have someone who's got crazy wild ideas and someone who knows how to make them sound cogent, that's a good combination. Otherwise known as the K of our group. <laughs> I'm just the editor. You guys should hear what this sounds like before he gets to it. My God. <laughs> but we couldn't do this without him. That's the thing. And so it's like having someone who can actually take your insanity and make it palatable. That's a hell of a contribution to the world. Yep. And everyone who has ever published anything had someone like that who never got credited. And it's kind of one of the reasons why I at least like that Engels's name is always on the Communist Manifesto. Because he was very much a partner in that. Yep. Now... Marx and Engels, they were German, but they were big fans of French socialism. They thought this was a really good thing. They didn't agree with everything. They definitely had some notes, <laughs> but they thought it was on the right fucking track. And they thought these guys who were looking at this and going, ooh, this is this is not going well. We're on, we're on the money, right? So they basically didn't see the French Revolution as saving the day. They thought it was a good kickoff to some theories, but they already saw the French countryside immediately be turned into what would later be called bourgeoisie democracy where there was no more Royals, you know? And again, the French revolution scared the shit out of everyone because they killed the fucking King and that's hardcore. And the British had already been going with some serious problems with their monarchy. And so now the French monarchy's completely collapsed. The German monarchy went through a bunch of problems. Like this is not going well. And so monarchies got really scared by this. And so that's where that this is a good idea comes into play. But again, they also had some serious gripes. And Marx even is quoted as saying the French Revolution of 1789 abolished feudal property in favor of bourgeois property. So he's basically saying, yeah, the royals don't own everything, but now the ultra wealthy own everything. What's the fucking difference to the worker? And that's kind of one of the things that spurred the writing of this manifesto was they wanted to, they had the French Revolution kick socialism off to a great start and they wanted to make some corrections. And so they wrote this thing. And, and with writing the Communist Manifesto, um, they codified the theory for the first time ever. You know, socialism is something that's getting talked about in French coffee houses. It's getting screamed at protests. It's getting talked about in their parliament, but it's not written down there's no code there's no ethics there's no this is what we believe this is what we don't believe and this is the first time it, it gets fucking written down right this is the council of nicaea for communism 
um, was these two guys sitting around candlelight discussing it. And, and really, and that's, again, that's where Engels came in, is making it good. A big argument against this, like the, like the nationalists that we almost had on the show, people who are undercover white nationalists like to claim that Marxism is an outside threat to Western culture. And that's, that's kind of puzzling because it was written by a pair of Germans and then it was published in London in 1848. So I don't know what Western culture is unless you're talking about like Guam typically when fucking morons talk about western culture they mean white people who's whiter than germans and the brit i mean i guess the swedes (laughs) i don't know where you're going with this yeah like i'm sure there's some dudes in finland or in iceland who are pretty fucking white well and this is Um, like surface level historical knowledge here like even if you don't know shit about what communism is which is most of america most of them know that marx was fucking german and associate him with communism you don't need to have i disagree with that highly i think most people have no idea who marx was Most, most people think marx was russian yeah and and that's part of the problem is they don't realize that this person marx lived early 1800s and died in uh what the 1883 abraham lincoln and karl marx were alive at the same time yeah Yeah. that's part of the problem is everybody thinks of him as lincoln actually quoted this guy who's this guy who started communism in socialist russia and it's just not true yeah not even a little we here in the united states had had socialism, the idea of socialism, in the late 1800s, all the way up through the early 1900s. Oh, I, oh, absolutely. Lincoln wasn't the only president. Like We've had many presidents that have been, in one way or another, advocating socialist ideas. I'm not going to accuse them of, any of them of being outright like communists or socialists, but again, these ideas that, that spawned from this are good fucking ideas. That's why so many people have come around to thinking about them. That's why so many presidents have parroted these ideas in, in a lot of their policies and stuff. I mean, where do you think things like the, the, the New Deal come from? That's not coming from capitalism. Well, that, that, came, from, that came from Roosevelt's wife. <laughs> True, yeah. <laughs> We've had people in our government that were self-espoused socialists uh, since uh, 1910. That's when the first socialist, Victor L. Berger, became the first congressman elected to the House of Representatives. That's when our first socialist outright called himself a socialist person was elected to office. And only after the the cold or, or the the start of the cold war did we really start having this war on communism and socialism correct in fact communism and uh fascism uh were both accepted in american politics until world war 2 well okay fascism was acceptable <laughs> until world war 2 until world war 2 uh communism fell out of favor um after world war 1 um, yeah but socialism there was like a dozen different socialist parties here in the United States that started in the late 1800s and really kind of died in the, the late 1920s, 1930s as we lead up to the Second World War. Sure, but we're talking about a couple of decades and a lot of political sure. nuance in between then. But of course, we are. Even, even while these guys are elected, socialism was already taking a beating 
in American politics. Of course it was. That's not what I was saying. Uh, I wasn't trying to say that it was like alive and well. I was just trying to say that it was here. We had these ideas. If we hadn't have had World War II, I think that a lot of those ideas would have continued to flourish. World War II was a turning point for a lot of things here in the United States. No, you're not wrong, but again, especially with American exceptionalism. Stalin was in power before World War II, and what he was doing was kind of well known. And people, that's like, I think that's where people started associating like all the shitty things that Stalin did is started getting associated with communism before World War II happened. That that's I think what what Chris is, well, and, is but that's about. why I said it was it, that it kind of went out of favor in the, like the 1920s 1930s that's well before World War II but World War II was really the nail in the coffin that that stopped this idea of communism or socialism here in the United States I I, I would completely disagree why because they were an enemy nation before World War II we went to war with with the Soviet Union right before World War II. They, they were an enemy. Yeah, they had a yes. non-aggression pact with Germany. Yeah. Like, the only reason they, they, they joined us is because Germany attacked them. <laughs> I, yes, but I've been saying that, that socialism really kind of fell out of favor right as all of that was starting to happen. And then World War II was the last nail in that coffin. It uh, was the last... Again, I, chronologically, but I don't... Causation does not... Or correlation does not equal causation. I don't think World War II had anything to do with it. The only thing that I could possibly say maybe is Churchill got into power and he liked to scream about it like the My Pillow guy. But I don't see how World War II changed anything in terms of, I mean, maybe accelerated, but you see the nail in the coffin. And you no, know, these ideologies were incompatible from the start and we were already at war over them. The, the only thing that I think World War II did was cause the Cold War to happen because we were the only two powers left. But in terms of making America anti-socialist or, or 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 vastly increasing, I don't think World War. I, in my opinion, I don't think World War II had any, and I'd be open to hearing why. But I don't see any historical reason for that because everything we hated about the Soviet Union was in full play before World War II. Okay, I I just see World War II as being like that last step, that last thing that, in the eyes of most Americans really turned the general public against communism. You know, World War II ends, we have the Cold War, and it's like we have to beat these commies. Yes. And that, to me, changes how an entire generation and an entire country sees an ideology. And I would agree to that if we weren't also saying that directly before World War II. Like, again, we, we literally said we have to beat these commies and went over to Russia and started killing them and fought a war. We invaded the Soviet Union. And then and World I, War II I breaks out that. and we're like, and that's one of the things that Roosevelt got a lot of credit for was literally making peace with our enemy and made peace with Stalin so that we could fight Nazi Germany. And then the war ended. And- Germany, Nazis, bad, you know. The enemy, yeah. the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly, but that's all it was. It was like it was a pause. It was like the Olympics, you know. It was, it was a pause in hostilities, and then it was business yeah. as usual. But now there was well, nukes. Yeah, and again, Stalin had a motivation to do that. The guy he had signed a peace treaty with realized, oh, the Western Front isn't going so well. Hmm, things look a little easier over here. Let's go this way. And because Hitler fucked over Stalin, that's the only reason Stalin got into World War II. Here's the thing. Russia and Germany were always going to fight. They hated each other. Yeah. The, 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 the people of the nations didn't like each other. In fact, 
literally the the Soviet Revolution was based on and next Germany. Like the plan of the early Soviets, like Trotsky and Lenin was like, okay, as soon as we're done here, we're marching into Germany and we're gonna turn them. And then the war broke out. And and and, yeah. and Hitler knew that, which is why he was so vehemently anti-communist. Not just because socialists and communists tend to see Jews as fellow proletarians. But also because communism was the thing that was planning on marching over and toppling his stupid little shit empire. And the Russians, well, I mean, communists don't like fucking fascists because they're they're antithetical. And so they were always going to go to war. But yeah, Stalin was basically going, well, I'm going to hold off as long as I can. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, once once Hitler invaded, it was like, I'll fucking work with anyone. I don't give a shit. A lot of people kind of assume that Stalin was caught off guard. It's like, oh, he knew this was coming. He always knew he was coming. He was buying as much time as possible to start turning farms into tank warehouses. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why a lot of people died in Russia who weren't shot by Nazis. Never going to defend Stalin on things like the Holodomor and the famines that he caused and the problems he created, especially in places like, you know, fucking Poland, but like in and, 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 um, Ukraine. Ukraine, yeah. The, the Holodomor is one of the greatest crimes in humanity. However... Stalin had to choose who to feed. At the end of the day, X amount of people were going to die. And he had to choose between steel workers in the city or farmers in the countryside. And he picked one. I don't necessarily think all choices are that binary. And I think there could have been a lot better ones. And maybe you shouldn't kill all your experts and you'll have better opinions to choose from. Yep. Stalin's a piece of shit. But it's like at the end of the day, like he had to make a decision. And he made one. And it's always cast as Stalin went around the countryside maniacally laughing, eating cake while people starved to death. It's like, well, uh, no, he had to allocate resources and there weren't enough. <laughs> there was a fucking well, and he He might have eaten cake, but we don't know that. Oh, I guarantee he did. I mean, there's the famous pictures of Stalin. Historical fact, by the way, a fun one. There's very famous photos of Stalin and they were used in propaganda in Russia. And it's called Stalin and the Little Girl. And you'll literally see photos. And this is where... By the way, I love that people referred to Joe Biden as this because he was referred to as Uncle Joe uh, when these came out. And he was Uncle Joe, uh, which, by the way, Stalin was not his name. His name was actually like... Stalin was like Steel or something, but his, his oh, name okay. was like... Yeah, his name was like Yergi Russian sounding names. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and he chose Joseph Stalin because it translates to Man of Steel. And he's got these photos of him. You'll see these photos of him like lovingly hanging out with the sweet little girl, having a great time. Everything's good in communist Russia. The thing is, is the reason she was there and they took photos is because he was distracting her as they were executing her father. Oh, that's that's lovely. Yeah, they brought his dad. They brought her dad in to shoot him. Um, and Joseph Stalin was like, uh, hey, come here, little girl. <laughs> And the person's like, hey, this is a good photo up. And they took it. It was constantly doing his look. Stalin's good with the kids. And it's like, I mean. He's good at distracting kids while their parents are being shot. So yeah, Stalin sucks. Anyway, this is a tangent. Let's get back on track, listeners. So here is where Marxism takes flight. Okay, here's where here's where this is differentiated from French socialism or anything that came before is the idea of class struggle. Okay, Marx coined this term and basically said that all of human history is class struggle. And uh, I would have to agree with him. Now, class struggle in, in political science, right? It's, it's a political science term and, and philo philosophical. And it, it, socialists and Marxists use the term class conflict to basically uh, define social class by its, by, by its relationship to the means of production. Okay, and you hear that word a lot, the means of production. 
And, and the means of production are, again, we talk about their factories, agricultural land where you grow food, uh, industrial machinery, right? Kay's a machinist. He works at places that have machines that produce and create things. Those machines, those CNC machines, and the warehouse they're under are the means of production. And it's not just physically producing something, a train that hauls cargo or a tr an 18 wheeler that hauls cargo down the highway. That is a means of production because production doesn't mean physical objects. Production is production of capital. So let's remember that the things that generate capital, that is the means of production. And so all and the social control of the labor and the production of goods and services is a political contest between the social classes. That's what it basically means. The conflict is between the capitalist class who owns most of society's wealth and the means of production and the proletariat on the other side. And the proletariat is the working class, which is everyone from blue collar work like agriculture, manufacturing, transportation. Uh, but it's also the white collar jobs like retail, service, event management, uh, even, you know, Basically, if you receive a paycheck, you're proletariat. Uh, you may think the executive in, in at the top of your company is in the capitalist class, but they're not. If they don't own the means of producing capital, they simply manage it. The vice president or the president of your corporation does not own the company. He is a manager, which means they're like cops. They're class traders, sure, but they're still proletarian. They are earning a wage through labor. Now, the other class is smaller by far, but it's the bourgeoisie, which is the, the French term we talked about earlier for the middle class. Now, as Americans, don't get this twisted, guys. This is another tricky terminology that we have usurped. The middle class is not what we think it is, okay? The middle class, again, it, the French deemed these classes, and it's a class that's in between royalty and peasants. That's why it's in the middle. You have the royalty at the top, and you have the peasants at the bottom, and who's in the middle? Again, this is... People who are not royalty but very wealthy. These are the guys who owned land and resources that produce capital. The clergy, huge farm owners, people who own just vast amounts of gold, that kind of thing. They were the owners of merchant fleets, right? And, and huge textile sweatshops. You know, these are these are the middle class. Not long after, they'd be people like Carnegie, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan. Uh, and today we see it again still. People like Bezos and Bill Gates and Richard Branson. Uh, these guys are the bourgeoisie, okay? These are the capitalists, people who own the means of producing capital, not people who are executives under them. Um, those are just bootlickers who get a lot of money. The other thing they established in this is that division of property we talked about earlier, the public property, like the roads you drive on and the government buildings you go into and courthouses, private property, which is like businesses and privately owned land, and then personal property, like your home, your car, your backpack. And capitalists, again, have used that, that terminology to scare you, but that's what they mean is they want, they think that the control of private property warehouses, land, that kind of thing, that should be controlled by the people. So in this manifesto, right, you know, Karl Marx doesn't just talk about the past, he talks about the future. And, and what did he predict, right? Because that's a good one is, is, okay, this is now, you know, what, fucking 150 something years old, you know, by now, we can judge it based on what it got right, what it got wrong. 
you know, how do we know Nostradamus was was a dipshit and a charlatan? Because he didn't actually predict anything. He just said, "Oh, I see a vision of a swamp and a and a crow and <laughs> and a volcano somewhere." And everyone's like, "Oh my god, 9-11. You know, it's bullshit. If you can predict something that will actually happen, it means your theory was right. If a hundred years later none of it comes true and the opposite holds true, well, then your theory's bullshit. And it's not perfect. There are things that are wrong, but the manifest lays out kind of a future prediction where only the bad parts have basically come true and not the good stuff. And it's nuts to think about at the time. We're talking mid 1800s, right? Modern capitalism was new. It was regional. It relied on local industry. It was not very prevalent. It did not rule nations or international trade. International trade existed in, in, in weird blocks. There was no globalism, right? Um, but what it did predict, uh, and, and it, again, people like Thomas Paine and Karl Marx took a look around and, and they could see where this was going. They knew exactly the kind of world that was about to get created by steel plants and sweatshops. Um, and it predicted wage slave markets where huge sums of humans would work and struggle to survive to support these extra extravagant lives to a tiny amount of capitalists like Bezos who goes into space. You know, they're ultra wealthy. These guys shoot themselves into space for competition or they live holed up in mansions compounding wealth and you never even hear of them because they literally just go crazy inside their own mansions um, and they become more isolated from reality either way. Uh, and while that goes on, all of us, everyone else struggles to put food on the table, pay tuition fees, juggle one credit card for another, or fight depression. You know, we act as if our lives are carefree. We, we, we claim that we like what we do and do what we like, and we're totally free. But in reality, most Americans cry themselves to sleep. That's the world we live in. And, and Marx predicted that. The manifesto predicts that. That people will be completely removed from their labor and will live a slave wage, soulless existence. And Marx's only failing I see in here was that in thinking that capitalism would be over soon, you know, he, he failed to predict that capitalist propaganda would make workers start to see themselves as consumers instead of workers. Um, he thought this whole capitalism thing was going to last for a century at most and be over. He thought the workers were about to unite because the Industrial Revolution had created a monster. And, and he loved and hated it. He talked about the Industrial Revolution like this will eventually take care of all the needs of mankind. It's amazing. We need to wrestle its control away from the most evil and selfish among us. And he thought there was going to be a revolution really soon. And it didn't happen. You know, there's revolution in some places, but it didn't take hold. And so even though he thought industrialization was going to lead to a better life, no one understood climate change back then. That's kind of the other biggie here, right? He thought the, the, that wage slavery was going to be the biggest affront to mankind and Turns out capitalism did bring it about, but it brought about the end of the world physically uh, sooner than we thought, right? But he did leave one statement that I always thought was 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 haunting about this. And I, I've heard this a lot. And I looked up just to make sure my quote was accurate. Uh, basically, he just said that, you know, he, just, he said those who profit from the existing system would resist any fundamental change to it, even if it jeopardized the lives of future generations to come. The rationale of capitalism lies in the maximization of profit. No other ends can modify this aim. So even if it destroys the world, capitalists will not stop. And we see he, he, he knew that in the 1800s. And we see that now with oil companies willfully hiding their data and letting climate change skyrocket for profit, because that is what capitalism brings you. And and the, the failure to go after that is another is 
kind of the biggest problem that socialists and capitalists come across is because, you know, liberals will cry about income inequality, but they'll completely ignore the cause of the problem. And that's the ownership of the means of production. That causes slavery, misery, global poverty, famine. Now the annihilation of the environment to a degree that our planet's probably going to be unlivable in 100 years. But we don't talk about that. We, 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 we try to make incremental changes. But, you know, again, it's not gospel. Take it for what it is. But Marx stated that capitalism could only be overthrown by a means of revolution carried out by the working class. He said the proletarian movement is the self-conscious, independent movement of the immense majority in the interest of the immense majority. You know, and and that that says something. And then you start looking at, well, when do we actually see massive changes for the better to overthrow capitalism? And yeah, it actually only does come through uh, mass violent revolution. I just want to read something real quick. It's the last lines of the Communist Manifesto, right? And he says, the communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing conditions. Let the ruling class tremble at a communistic revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. That's how it closes out. And it leaves us with this. That's where socialism leads us with this idea of it's all or nothing. Um, and that's typically where socialists and liberals come into conflict is revolution or reformation. We talked about this before. It, it's, it's, I mentioned this people in these camps typically fall into two, two categories, revolutionists, revolutionaries, or reformists. Just to reiterate, Bernie Sanders is a good example of a reformist. Do I agree with a lot of Bernie's ideas? Absolutely. Chris does Most too. of them. Yeah. But Bernie Sanders' fundamental flaw is that he believes unequivocally that change can come with from, from within. That all you have to do is work within the system and eventually you can change it. Bernie Sanders has been pitching that for what, the last 50 years? And that you can work within the Democratic Party and they fuck him over every time. And again, it has taken him this long to even get the barest minimum of his views and policies into effect. And even when he does get some of them passed, they're hatcheted in half. I mean, yeah. look, look, look at, at, at what we got for Obamacare. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't be striving to have health care and cover more people. But you had to adopt a shitty Republican version of it just to get it to pass. Yeah, and we still didn't get single payer health care at all, which isn't even socialism. It's, it's allowing the capitalist system to still profit just that everyone gets to play ball now. Like literally, that's what was fought for was, OK, can we just make sure that every single person at least gets to play in the capitalist system of health care? And even that was too much. We don't have that because even access to the game is restricted for the wealthy. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And so that's what you have to see this as. And again, I want to make a distinction here. You, just because some people fall into the category of revolutionist and some people, sorry, revolutionary, and some people fall into the category of reformist, doesn't mean you can't uh, get along, doesn't mean you can't agree with them. But there is a point where I think, and this is where I think I agree more with Chris, where eventually the reformists are going to have to either join up or get out of the way. And that is where we are going to call an intermission. Everyone's going to need to run to the lobby and grab some snacks. Uh, this is going to be a long episode. It's a two-parter, and we didn't want to, like, destroy your commute and your ear holes for two hours. So this is our first part. Stick around, because Kay and I get even more heated, and someone gets called a bitch. It's me. I'm bitches. <laughs> All day long. <laughs>
All this and more on the next exciting episode of the Alt-Left Podcast. So, we will see you next week. Uh, We will be launching the second half of this, so stay tuned. I hope you like it as much as we like recording it.